And so, Father, we, uh, let's just pray as we, we come to this portion of God's Word. I know this is a difficult portion, uh, Romans 9, and we spent a little bit of time last week in it, or two weeks ago, and uh, we'll be beginning in verse 6 this morning. But, Father, we just pray that you would illuminate our hearts, our minds, help us to set aside the busyness of our week, that we could focus for the next few moments together on your Word and its truth, that you would speak truth into our lives that we would leave here uh, different from whence we came in. We just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, Romans chapter 9, verses, I want to read verses 6 to 13 for us, and then I'll open up a little illustration, and uh, it's going to take a little bit of time to get through this section of Scripture because it is kind of uh, intricate, And uh, but uh, we're praying for God's grace. So, Follow along as I read our scripture for this morning, Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that is not the children of flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Wow. Uh, This text of scripture is troublesome at best for many, and it's hard to um, understand a lot of times, but we're going to do it uh, our best shot the next couple weeks. Um, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary shares an illustration of a champion woodworker woodcarver and uh, he was from Bavaria and uh, he found a piece of of wood in the uh, open bag of grain just found this piece of wood shoved in there and the, the wood was the same color as the colors of grains uh, that, that was in the, uh, the bag, the wheat. And so he took it into his hands and he began to carve little imitation pieces of wheat out of this wood. And he carved a handful of them and he mixed them with some of the real wheat. And then he invited his friends um, to tell them apart. Um, the woodcarver had done such an incredible job, the story goes on, that no one could tell the difference. Even he was unable to tell the difference, to distinguish the true from the false kernels of grain. And uh, in the end, the only way to distinguish the false from the true uh, kernels of grain was to place these grains in water. And after a few days, obviously, the real grain would begin to sprout. And while the imitation grain remained exactly what it was before, dead wood. Well, we're coming to this section of Scripture. And there's a parallel here for those who profess to be God's people. Um, To humanize, a lot of times, um, we may look at people and say, wow, they're professing Christ, they must be a Christian. And we just assume, assume that sometimes. And sometimes these people are almost indistinguishable from real children of God. You have people who profess to be Christ, who may not possess Christ. And then you have people who possess Christ. And sometimes you can't tell the difference who is who. Um, In the end, the only way to really tell the difference, whether or not, you have the life of God in you, whether or not you're a true believer, is basically when you look at spiritual growth in your life. 
just like those grains of wheat that were put in the water, the only way you could tell the difference between the dead wood and the real pieces of grain because they looked identical was when they were placed in the water, one would begin to sprout. And, and I want you over the next several weeks as we forge our way through this section of Scripture to really focus on your own life. Don't be looking at your neighbor. Don't be looking at your wife, your husband. Don't be elbowing, you know, that kind of thing. Ask God to speak into your life the truth that we're going to go over the next couple of weeks because it's, it's going to really be able to hopefully give you a picture of your salvation in a way that maybe you didn't see it before. And as we come to this passage of Scripture, we looked last uh, two weeks ago at the first six verses, and we saw, spent several weeks there, how Paul had a burden to reach his countrymen, his fellow Jew. And uh, he really had this, this burden to the point where he said, if I could even be condemned, I would be willing to do that for their salvation. And he knew that couldn't happen, but that's, that's the burden that he had. And, and so we come to this portion of Scripture here, and a lot of commentators, most commentators say this is, James Boyce says, this is the most entire, the, the most difficult portion of Scripture in the entire Bible to interpret. It can be confusing. Um, he says it's even more difficult and more confusing than some of those sections in Daniel, Revelation, and other books of prophecy. And I think what he means by that is, you know, we can read this and we can understand what the words are saying. You know, some of the prophetic books, you know, you got circles inside of circles and they're spinning. It's just bizarre things, right? But these we can understand. But in the end, once we understand it, we go, wow, do we really want to believe this? I mean, just that last verse I read, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wait a minute. See, in Israel... The subject of Israel comes up in the next few chapters here in Romans. And we're going to have to deal with the subject of Israel. And it's amazing when you visit the land of Israel over there. um, It's it's just when you're walking around and you're seeing all this history and you're seeing all the connections with the the Bible and everything. And yet you're you're realizing that, you know what, here we're, we're walking around a place that was at one time the people were totally committed to God. They were totally committed to God. And now they seem kind of pushed off by the whole thing. They don't want to deal with it. Um, I mean, they have their religion and you have yours and that's fine. Just, you know, uh, don't push it on them. And you know what? As they reject the Messiah today, it was the same thing back in Paul's time, back in Jesus' time. They rejected the Messiah when he came. Um, Today, your basic everyday uh, secular Jew... Um, would basically understand that the Messiah, they would call the Messiah today the state of Israel. They would say, well, we believe the Messiah came and it's the state of Israel. And, and there's a lot of writings out there that you can draw different parallels to that. Um, some affirm that, no, we're still waiting for the Messiah. Um, but a lot of, of Jewish people today have the mentality, you know what, Christians have their Messiah, they think it's Jesus Christ. Okay, just you know, let them believe that, that's fine. <laughs> um, and if they want to believe that that's the plan of God for them, so be it. But don't come over here and start pushing it on us. Um, and if you don't try to push your views onto those of the Jewish faith, they're okay with that. Uh, Don't try to give them the gospel. Don't try to give them the new covenant. Uh, They understand who their Messiah is, and their Messiah is none other than the nation of Israel itself. That's what some of those believe. There's a book that points out some of these parallels, and it was kind of interesting. It says, the Messiah was born of sovereignty by God. We believe that, by God's promise. And we think, as Christians, we believe that to be Christ. Well, they say that that's really the nation of Israel. Uh, We believe that the Messiah was protected in Egypt. And when when we think that, we think that, well, yeah, Jesus as a baby was taken to get out of the, the scourge of Herod. 
But they say, no, that's really Israel taken into Egypt into captivity to preserve it as a nation during the famine and other difficult times. Um, We know the scriptures say that the Messiah is to be despised and to be rejected and to be hated by all men. And we think that's Jesus Christ as Christians. But they say, no, that's the nation of Israel. I mean, and you can logically see the parallel, the drawing, right? I mean, you look at the nation, everybody's against Israel today. Uh, The Messiah was killed by the Romans. We say, yeah, that was Christ. He was crucified. Well, they say, no, that refers to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. We believe that the Messiah rose on the third day. We say that that's Jesus Christ. On the third day, he rose from the tomb. Well, they say, no, that's the nation of Israel after 2,000 years of captivity or 2,000 years of trial, 2,000 years of non-existence as a nation. And it's now in the third millennia since the time going to rise to the fullness of a power in the world and so forth. And so they draw these parallels and you can logically see where they're coming from. And many of them see the Messiah as the nation of Israel. And so they still reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The same way they rejected him as he was here on earth. They believe the same thing. And so when you walk around over there, you're thinking, wow, you know, this was a land, one time these are God's chosen people. This is, they were full on for God. And now they're caught up in all these traditions and all these religious beliefs. And they still reject God's son. Um, some Jews still believe the Messiah is coming. They believe the eastern gate um, was split wide open. And he will enter through Jerusalem and he'll take his reign there on his throne to reign forever. Um, that's not going to be the second coming of their Messiah. That's, they think it's their first coming. So you have those different kind of views that are going to come up. Um, there's a lot of people in Christianity today that believe, well, yeah, you know, God basically turned his back on Israel and now he's all about the church. And so what they would believe is something called replacement theology, that when the church was born, that replaced Israel. And so now all the promises to Israel are now fulfilled through the church. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's promises to Israel are still true, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit uh, in the coming weeks. And so you have to kind of put your thinking caps on for the next month or so when you're coming to church. Because one secular view of Israel is that it's really the nation of Israel, that there's no actual Messiah coming. The other view is that there will be a Messiah, but he hasn't arrived yet. He's still coming. And both of those views reject that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, And it's it's hard to understand that kind of rejection when you look at Scripture, even in, in the Old, excuse me, Old Testament. And you see all the prophecies and all the fulfilled prophecies that Christ fulfilled. He fulfilled all of them. And God has blinded their eyes to that truth. And it's so glorious when someone of the Jewish faith has their eyes opened. And they accept and affirm Christ to be the Messiah. I mean, then it's really like, wow, look out, because they know... A lot of Jewish folks know the scriptures far better than we do, especially the Old Testament. And so it all, all the puzzles begin to fit together, and it's kind of like you're watching a movie, and you're wondering how it's going to end, and then all of a sudden, oh, that aha moment. Well, I think that when we see these truths over the next couple weeks, as I said, some of them are going to be difficult to understand. Some of them are going to be easy to understand, but they're going to be difficult to accept. And see, this is where we have to realize that, you know what? We were all giddy when we were in Romans 8. You know, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And wow, this is just glorious, you know? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Wow. Well, wait a minute. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. (laughs) I don't know if I agree with that. 
See the problem? We have to understand that what we're reading in chapter 9 is just as inspired as chapter 8. And so, before we even get into the outline there, I want you to understand that sometimes these truths are difficult to accept. But I want you to understand that you're still called to joyfully submit yourselves to them. Even though they may not make sense in our logic, even though we may not totally fully comprehend We're called to joyfully submit to them. And joyfully submitting to Romans 9 is the key to benefiting spiritually from what we're going to be teaching over the next couple weeks. Because if you're just stuck in your own logic and in your own way and say, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't want a God like that. Then that's where you're going to end up in a couple weeks. You're going to end up very frustrated. But if you come to this text of Scripture with an attitude of, hey, you know what? This is God's Word. This is true. And, and we need to make sure that it's, it's, we're understanding what the writer intended for us to see. You'll be benefited spiritually as a result of that. But Romans 9 is hard for many believers to submit to because really it changes your view of God. It forces you into a more biblical view of who God is. See, a lot of times many people today want God to be somebody who they kind of created in their own mind. They don't want to really submit to the God of the Bible. They, have you, how many times have you witnessed somebody and you say, well, you know what? Um, you know, okay, you've admitted you're a sinner, but uh, what are you going to do if, if God sends you to hell? God judges you because of your sin. People, what do they say? Oh, my God wouldn't do that. I don't believe God would do that. And what are they doing? They're, they're creating a God in their own mind that meets their satisfaction. And we can do that even when we come to spiritual truth. We can say, well, you know, that, that truth, I want to stay away from that. I don't really agree with that. But that doesn't make it any less true. A lot of times people today want God to be an equal opportunity savior. He just loves everybody the same. God is love. They want him to be fair, giving everyone the equal chance to be saved. And they want that salvation, at least in some small way, to be linked to something that they do. Because that feeds our ego. They want to think that God loves me because in spite of my faults, I, you know, I, I'm really a lovable person. <laughs> I mean, I can understand why, why God loves me and God saved me. See, that's how people think today. Or they think the reason I'm saved is because I chose God. The decision was up to me. And I made the wise, wise choice. These other people, sorry, that, you know, they, they'll, they'll wise up maybe one day, but you know, I'm glad that I chose Christ. And my salvation is part due to my understanding of the gospel and, and my choice of God. See, that's what people believe today. But in Romans 9, Paul shows us clearly that God has not granted salvation equally to all people. That's hard to hear. I understand that, but that's what the text teaches. He has always made choices. Not only between nations, but also between individuals. He has not given everyone an equal chance to be saved. You say, wow, that's, that, that, that sounds almost heretical. But Paul states that when God saves someone, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything good in that person. Nothing. Rather, it depends totally on God's purpose. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had not done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue... See, it's God's purpose that's at stake here. Then he adds in verse 16, So then it does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on what? On who? On God who has mercy. See, we're saved by the grace, by the mercy of God. We're not saved because of our own intellect. We're not saved because we had an aha moment one day and figured all this stuff out and said, oh, now I need to come to Christ. No, we're saved because God drew us. The Bible says very clearly that we could never love God 
if he hadn't first loved us. We sang about that this morning. And to squash the idea that God has mercy equally on everyone, look at verse 18. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but just look at it. He says, so then he has mercy on what? Everyone? No. On whom he desires. And then look at the next part. And he hardens whom he desires. Whoa. Do you see why this is going to take a little while for us to get through this? That's not hard to understand. Those words are pretty plain spoken. But you probably find it hard joyfully to submit to those words. Some of you may think, you know, I can accept that because it's in the Bible, but, but I don't like it. <laughs> so you submit to it, kind of like you're submitting to a, a bowl of asparagus or peas or whatever your horrible vegetable that you don't like to eat is. I know it's good for me, but I hate every bite. See, why do we say, well, we have to joyfully submit to Romans 9. Well, there's three reasons here, and they're not in the outline, so you're just going to have to write them down. First of all, this is God's revelation of who He is. The first reason we need to joyfully submit to the truth of Romans 9, because we know it's God's truth, is that it is the revelation of who He is. And we should not grudgingly accept who He is, but we should rejoice in who He is. He's our God, He's our Creator. He's the only totally perfect and glorious being in the whole universe. It's God's revelation of who he is. The more that we see him in his glorious beauty, the more we should rejoice. We shouldn't say, well, that's kind of hard to accept. No, we should rejoice in the fact that God wrote these words down for us to understand. Secondly, we should rejoice in these truths about God because Jesus did. We're called Christians. We're called to emulate Christ with our lives. Luke 10.21, in the Gospels, Jesus said this, Rejoice greatly in the Holy Spirit. The truth that made him rejoice greatly was that the Father, in Luke 10.21, previously, whom he calls Lord of heaven and earth, which we sang about also this morning, has hidden the truth of knowing him from the wise and had revealed it to babes. If you look at that, that context, that's what he's talking about. Jesus said the only ones who can know the Father are those to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If that truth of the Father and Son revealing themselves to some but not to others doesn't make you rejoice, then you aren't rejoicing in what Jesus rejoiced in. Thirdly, the truths that we're going to discover here in Romans 9 should make you rejoice because Paul is using them to explain why your salvation is not only secure, but that it's certain. These truths will help you understand your salvation in Christ more fully. That your salvation in Christ isn't left up to you. It's something that God has accomplished through His Son. That Christ is sufficient to save us. That's why back in Romans 8, he says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He doesn't say, oh, we're, we're, we're more than conquerors if we just keep on loving, if we just keep on doing the right thing. No, he says, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's why neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor blah, 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 can, can separate us from the love of Christ. Love of God in Christ Jesus. So those three things will be very evident. We should rejoice because it describes who God is, the character of God. We should rejoice because that's what Jesus did. And thirdly, we should rejoice in it because it will help us understand that our salvation is secure and that it's certain. See, the problem that we're addressing here and that Paul addressed in, in uh, Romans 9 10 and 11 is simply this. If God's promises to bless the Jews are certain, then why are most Jews rejecting Christ? That's what he's, that's the question he's asking. If God's promises to bless the Jews are certain, then why are most Jews rejecting Christ? Does their rejection of Jesus mean that God's promises fail? 
See, that's what replacement theology teaches. Replacement theology teaches that the Jews, as a nation, rejected God, rejected Christ. They rejected the Messiah, and so God had to bring the church along. And when the church came along, all the promises that were promised to Israel are now fulfilled in the church. That's a lie. That's not true. That's not what the Scripture teaches. And yet there's churches all over the peninsula teaching that. See, if if you teach that, then politically, who cares about Israel, right? Right? Because God's done with Israel. And so now, you know, we're, we're focusing on the church. So we don't need to support Israel anymore. That's what certain people believe. But the Bible's very clear. You look at the nations that lack in support for Israel, and you look at where they're at. The Bible says very clearly, he will curse those who curse Israel, who bless those who bless Israel. And we're right teetering as a nation on that brink. Very clearly. So does their rejection of Jesus mean that God's promises can fail? And if his promises to Israel fail, well, what about the wonderful promises of Romans 8? (laughs) That nothing can separate it. Wait a minute. If the promises to Israel fail, then as Christians, what about our promises? Are they going to fail too? See, that's why Paul here is arguing why God's word cannot fail. God's word cannot fail, there it says in your outline, because he always accomplishes his purpose through his free choice of a remnant according to his grace. And we're going to go over this passage again next week. So this is just kind of an introduction to the message. Um before we actually get into the text, I I want us to understand, and I want to show you very clearly from other scriptures, um, that it's very important that we understand that God's word or God's promise cannot fail. Uh, He must be the all-powerful sovereign who always accomplishes his purpose. In other words, if you want God's promises to hold true, you must let God be God. Period. That sounds kind of reasonable on the surface, you might say, but there are a lot of believers who fight against that. Maybe some of you will fight against some of the things we're going to be taught in the coming weeks. But my prayer is that while the effect may not take hold by the end of this sermon, hopefully, as you wrestle to understand these deep truths, that you will come out the other side somehow rejoicing in them. Because there's something about understanding these truths that, that just shows you how secure you are in Christ. Well, look at the first point there. God's word cannot fail because he is the only sovereign of the universe who accomplishes, who always accomplishes his purpose. He's the only one. For God to be always To be able always to keep his promises, he must be absolutely sovereign. If he purposes something, but he can't actually pull it off, then his purpose is uncertain. So stop and and think about it this way. If Satan or the demons or some other evil entity, a powerful human ruler, somehow can mess up God's purpose, then you know what? He's not sovereign. And you know what? You can't trust his purpose. To put it another way, if God has to relinquish control over the course of history to the, quote, free will of man, then history may not turn out exactly as God planned. For God's purpose to hold true, that absolutely nothing can separate us from his love, God has to be able to carry out his sovereign purpose in spite of all the attempts of Satan in spite of all the wicked sinners in spite of our own sin his purpose will be carried out well what does God's sovereignty mean? God's sovereignty means that he is free to plan to choose and to carry out his plan and no one is able to thwart his plan no one not you, not me, not Satan not our president, anybody And I want to share a couple of verses with you, just to kind of cement this in your mind. In the book of Job 23, verse 13, 
says, but he is unique and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. Job 42, 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In the book of Psalms, we're told this over and over again. Psalm 22, verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Psalm 33, 10 and 11, the Lord nullifies the counsels of the nations. He frustrates the plans of peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Or Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Even in the prophetic books, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 to 35, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? (laughs) Isaiah chapter 46, 9 to 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning from the ancient times which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And even in the New Testament of the book of Ephesians as well as other places, we just don't have time to go through all these verses. But Ephesians chapter 1 verses 10 to 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. I mean, these are just a few of dozens and dozens of verses that speak of God's absolute sovereignty over his creation, over his angelic, over the human parts of creation as well as the angelic parts of creation. I mean, don't get me wrong, Satan is a powerful being, but Satan cannot thwart God's purpose, not even for a second. And in the end, he will accomplish God's purpose. And then he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. See, rebellious, powerful monarchs, politicians cannot thwart God's purpose. They can't do it by persecuting the church. They can't do it by by imposing certain things. They can't do that. In the end, they're only pawns to accomplish his purpose. And then they will face eternal judgment. I mean... In the light of these, all these verses, I mean, and these are just a small little smidgen. I mean, just go on your computer and type in, you know, God's sovereignty, whatever you, you, you know, many verses pop up. It's puzzling to me why so many professing Christians argue that God has relinquished his sovereignty to the will of man. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it's almost like they picture God up in heaven, wringing his hands. Okay, I've done everything I can do. You know, I sent Jesus, he lived his life, and now he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, and I just hope somebody, somebody please trust in my son so it doesn't, you know, go in vain. That's not what God is doing in heaven. That's not how this salvation thing plans out. I mean, they're saying that God's purpose in sending his son to the cross has been frustrated by human sin. That somehow God's purpose has been frustrated. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Sovereignty of God, says this, to declare that the creator's original plan has been frustrated by sin is to dethrone God. See, the biblical truth that God is absolutely sovereign which means that he always accomplishes his purposes, beloved. That should cause us to rejoice. That should cause us to go, wow, I'm on the right side. This is a good deal. Because it means that his promise concerning his love for you in Christ cannot and will not ever fail. That you are secure in your salvation in Christ. It's not left up to you. It's something that's been accomplished so important to understand these truths. Well, Paul's argument here in our text, number two in your outline, God's word of promise 
to the Jews cannot fail because he always accomplishes his purpose through his free choice of a remnant according to his grace. Paul states there kind of the proposition in verse 6. He says, but is it not, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Then he explains this by the principle, for they all are not of Israel who are descended from Israel. Who is he speaking to? He was really confronting the proud Jewish notion that all Jews would go to heaven by virtue simply of their physical birth as Jews. It's kind of like, well, you know, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, you know, we, we go to church. Or are you a Christian? Yeah, I, I was raised in a Christian family. It's, it's a parallel belief even in our own belief system. But they believe that if you were born a Jew, then you're guaranteed heaven. You're God's chosen people. And Paul proves the principle with two illustrations. The first one in verses 7 to 9, he shows that not all of Abraham's descendants were his true children. But only those who were what? Children of the promise, he says through Isaac. Ishmael and his descendants were children of the flesh, it says in verse 8. See, but Paul's Jewish critics might have said, well, granted, Ishmael was not the child of promise because his mother was Hagar, an Egyptian maid. So Paul gives a second illustration in verses 10 to 13 to prove his point. The descendants of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau were born of the same mother and father at the same time. But God chose Jacob, he says, and he rejected Esau. Because he did, they did something? No. While they were still in the womb. The illustration is, before either one of them had done good or bad... Well, why would God do such a thing? Well, it tells us in verse 11, does it not? So that his purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And Paul backs up his point with two Old Testament references. Genesis 25, 23, the older will serve the younger, he says. And then he quotes Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. See, he's proving that God's word to Israel has not failed because God has always accomplished his purpose through his free choice of a remnant according to his free grace. Before we get into this, I just want to respond to two common attempts to kind of thwart what Paul is teaching here, to dodge the issue. First of all, some people claim that in Romans 9, Paul is not dealing with God's choice of some for salvation, but it's for service. That's what they say. Well, it's interesting because when you begin to understand this, why would Paul be so deeply grieved in verses 1 through 5 over the fact that most of his fellow Jews were not saved? He wasn't grieved because they weren't serving God. He was saved. He was grieved because they weren't saved, because they weren't part of God's salvation. The terms that he uses in our text show that salvation is the issue, clearly. Children of God, children of the promise, verse 8, invariably refer to salvation. You can look at other texts, Romans 8, 16, 21, Philippians 2, 15, Galatians 4, 28. And when he says here in verse 11 to call, this terminology always refers to God's effectual call to salvation. He's not talking about calling people into service. He's talking about calling people into salvation. Another argument is that Paul is talking about nations, not about individuals. Uh, somehow, this is supposed to um, soften <laughs> the unpleasant notion that God chooses individuals for salvation. But if God chose Israel as a nation, but didn't choose any other nation, then all the individuals in other nations were excluded from the covenant promises. And when you look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 to 3 in its context... 
It refers to nations that came forth from Jacob and Esau. It went back to God's choice of Jacob and rejection of Esau as individuals while they were still in the womb. He's not talking about nations. He's talking about individuals here. And so here's where the question pops into our heads. If it's supposedly unfair of God to choose one individual and reject another, isn't it more unfair to choose one nation and reject all others? See, the problem that Paul is addressing here is why are many individual Jews who are part of the elect nation of Israel not saved? That's the question in a nutshell. He's saying, wait, the nation of Israel is chosen, but you're saying not all Jews are saved? That doesn't make any sense. His answer is that God didn't choose everyone in Israel to be saved, even though he chose the nation. Later on in verse 5 of chapter 11, he refers to the true Israel. He refers to it as a remnant according to God's glorious choice. So is it possible to be part of the chosen nation of Israel and not be saved? Of course it is. That's that's clear. Because spiritual Israel, those who will be saved, are within the physical nation of Israel. It's kind of like if you had a family and, and you were a Christian family. I mean, God would obviously bless that family because of its Christian roots. Let's say you had a new sibling born. Well, just because that person is born into your Christian family doesn't mean that they're a Christian. They have to come to Christ. They have to be convicted of their sin. They have to understand their need of a Savior. God saves us individually, beloved. He doesn't save us as a a corporate family. See, and this is where it even ties into our understanding of Salvation and what did Christ accomplish on the cross? Was Christ's death on the cross specific or was it general? These are all questions you need to struggle with. I believe that it was specific. I believe when Christ died on the cross, he died for me. He died for you if you're a believer here today. He paid for your sins. There are people that believe, no, Jesus died a general death. He paid for all the sins of all the world, but then it's up to us to secure that. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't put much favor on that argument. Because I know if it was left up to me, there's no way I'd be saved. I'd think of every excuse not to be saved. So we want to consider here four aspects of Paul's teaching. First of all, God always accomplishes his sovereign purpose through his choice of a remnant. Paul's answer to the question of whether God's word has failed because most of the Jews were rejecting Christ is no. Because God never promised to save the entire nation of Israel, but rather only a remnant. See, that's what he means there in verse 6. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. He made the same point in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, when he said that being a true Jew is not the matter of, remember we went through this, outward circumcision, but rather an inward work of God's Spirit in the heart. It's kind of like today in our modern day vernacular, it would be like saying, well, you know, if you come up here and get baptized, then you're saved. No. You would come up here and get baptized because you want people to know that you're saved. Your baptism doesn't accomplish your salvation. Christ's death on the cross accomplished your salvation. The reason we're baptized is because we want to be obedient to God's command to be baptized. We want to follow in the steps of Christ. We want to show those around us, the world, that, hey, there's been a change in my life. And see, what Paul is running into is a lot of 
Jews were going through the traditions, they're doing all this stuff and say, well, we're saved because we do this, or we're saved because we're part of this family, or we're part of this heritage, or we're part of that. And he says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Because not all Israel are descended from Israel. He says it slightly different, a different, different language in verse 7 there. He says, nor are all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Think about it. Ishmael and Isaac were both Abraham's physical children, right? But only who? Isaac was the child of promise. See, God's spiritual blessings were to come through the line of Isaac, not Ishmael. And then Paul, he repeats it again, um, just to make sure that we get it there in verse 8. He says, that is... It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. He's saying that while in a general sense God chose the entire nation of Israel, he never promised to save every Jew. Rather, some Jews were the children of the promise of salvation. And he explains this in verse 11. So that God's promise, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. See, the Bible is so very, very clear that God has always accomplished his purposes by choosing some. Which implies that he rejects others. Uh, An entire city, the Earl of the Chaldees, was made up of pagan idolaters. Joshua chapter 24, you probably read that. But God chose only one man out of that city, Abram, and he promised to bless him. He specifically excluded Abram's family by telling Abram to leave them and go to the place that God would designate. He didn't even tell him where he was going. And then Abraham fathered Ishmael through Hagar and asked God to make him the heir. But what did God do? God refused that request. And he told Abraham that Isaac would be the son of promise. In similar fashion, God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. His purpose was never to save all the descendants of Abraham, but only a chosen remnant. This should make our salvation very special. This should make us feel very, very blessed. Especially when you realize, wow, this didn't really have a lot to do with me. Well, the second thing here, God accomplishes his sovereign purpose through his power, not through man's ability. He accomplishes it through his power, not through man's ability. There should be like 100 amens right there. Because if it was left up to us, none of us would be saved. Uh, Ishmael was the child of the flesh, beloved, in the sense that Abraham conceived him through Hagar. Through natural means. Uh, There was no miracle there involved at all. But Isaac, the child of promise, was conceived after Abraham and Sarah were well past their natural ability to conceive children. His birth required what? God's miraculous power. Our birth, our rebirth, I should say, requires God's miraculous power. Um, Verse 9 there, when he says, I will come. It focuses on God's powerful intervention. His miraculous power was the only explanation for Isaac's birth. You could have said, oh yeah, that happens every day. No, it never happened. As such, Isaac is a picture of the spiritual miracle of our new birth, which is not humanly Explicable. Um, some of you may have been born into a Christian family. Some of you have been confirmed in the church. You've been baptized. You've done all sorts of things that your traditions call you to do. But if God does not impart new life into you, then you are not children of the promise. It's just the way it is. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 talks about that they are not true children of Abraham. John, when he spoke to Nicodemus, spoke to him in terms, he said, you must be born again. And even Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? 
How can he go back into the mother? How does this work? Right? And it's inexplicable. It's something that God has to do. And I don't know about you, but that that makes my salvation ever more special. (laughs) That God allowed me to, to, to come to him for his grace and be miraculously saved. I'm not a robot. You know, I just didn't wake up one day and, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus now. No, God worked through my volition and he was working. And the Bible says that he draws us to himself. And you know what? That should be not only encouragement for us who are Christians, but that should be an encouragement for those people who are not yet Christians. That you know what? God's working. God is, God is working. He's drawing you to himself. And yeah, you know what? You may even be fighting it. You may be bristling against it going, oh, I don't like this. I'm here to tell you, you know what? If God has it out for you, you're coming to him. You know, and the neat thing is, beloved, he's not going to be like dragging you into heaven and you're going, no, I don't want to go. You know, it's not that way at all. He, he changes you. He changes your desires. He changes your wants. To be in alignment with his. And all of a sudden, you're this person that you thought, wow, why didn't I see this before? Because you couldn't see it before because you were blinded by your sin. But God in his grace lifted the blinders from your eyes and you were born again. You were born from above. You were transformed. Now you can rejoice in your salvation because you were touched by God's power. The third thing here, God accomplishes his sovereign purpose through his free choice. And what I mean by this is God's purpose is not held hostage by whatever man decides to do. Because as we said earlier, if that were so, then man, not God, would be sovereign. I mean, it, it, I crack up all the time when I hear these teachers, you know. You just tell God what you want and you speak God and you're, you know, do this and you do that. And I'm thinking, whoa, who do you think you are? The Bible is very clear that God is the only sovereign over his creation. And we don't understand that because in America, well, we're getting to understand it a little more <laughs> with our present government. But usually there's a, there's, a, there's a government of checks and balances, okay? You can't just go in there and do whatever you want. Um, you know, we don't have a king, we have a president, right? So it's very important to understand that. But, you know, our president is not sovereign, even though sometimes you may think he is, over the country. All right? Because somehow Congress can, and they do all the time, go against the president's will. And you know what? If the people don't like him, then they can vote him out of office. But see, God's sovereignty is not that way. God's sovereignty is free, which is to say that he freely chooses what he wants to do, and he freely accomplishes his choices. And no one is able to mess that up. No one can thwart that at all. And Paul states God's free choice, really in the plainest of terms here in verse 11 and 12. He says, for though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. See, God doesn't wait to see what choices will people make and then base his plan and purpose on their decisions. That's not how God operates. He doesn't purpose his will and his plan to fit our will. He doesn't devise his plan based on foreknowledge. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Some people believe, you know, God looks down through the quarters of time and he sees how we respond to the gospel. And, oh, he's accepting Christ. Well, now, based on his acceptance of Christ, then I'll choose him back here. No, that's not how it works, beloved. Rather, his plan is based on his purpose, according to his choice. And it's based purely without regard on what people may or may not do. Now, his plan often goes against human custom. It often goes against common thinking. I mean, think about it. Do you understand the culture of what he's saying here? The older will serve the younger. 
That was like, I mean, they heard that and they just went, what? You got to be kidding me. I mean, even in our, our, you know, heritage here in America, I mean, there's something to be said about the oldest, the patriarch or the matriarch of the family, you know, that kind of thing. But to say, oh, you're the oldest, you've got to serve everybody else. Oh, wait a minute, that just doesn't fit. The last thing here, God accomplishes his sovereign purpose according to his grace. And Paul illustrates God's grace by God's choosing Jacob but rejecting Esau. Even before the twins were born. Even before they had done anything good or bad. It says in verse 11, not because of works but because of him who calls. See, the case here of Ishmael showed that physical birth from Abraham does not ensure God's blessing. Just because you're a son of Abraham doesn't mean you're going to be blessed by God. That of Esau shows that works do not. So whether it's physical birth or works, either one is not a way that God blesses us. If physical birth or good works could merit election, then it would not be an act of God's free gift, of God's free grace. So we come here to this troubling verse, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Some explain this to mean that God loves, loved Esau less than he loved Jacob. But the fact remains, it doesn't say that. God chose Jacob and he rejected Esau, right? By God's purpose, according to his choice, Jacob and his descendants were objects of God's covenant blessing. Whereas Esau and his, defend, and his descendants were excluded from those blessings. And that rings true even today. While we should not interpret this, this hate in terms of our, our, our sinful human hatred... I mean, that's the problem. We look at that word hate and we think of sin. Well, God cannot sin. God is perfect in every way. It does imply that God's just wrath of sin remained on Esau and his descendants while God's gracious love for salvation was on Jacob and his spiritual descendants, the children of promise. When we were on our cruise, they had a Bible study every day on the ship, and so we went to a couple days when we could, and it's an informal Bible study. So I, I didn't want to go because I thought, oh boy, you know, I have to rein my wife in. I'm going to have to rein myself in. You know, what are, we get, what are we getting into here? But it was good. And uh, the last day we had one, one gal, Catholic background, and, and uh, we're attempting to share the gospel with her. And at one point she goes, well, how would you describe hell? Let's go around the room and everybody describe hell. So we went around the room and, you know, oh, it's darkness. It's, you know... Um, sulfur, it's burning, it's everlasting torment with all this stuff. And uh, she said, well, how would you describe hell? I said, well, somebody even said, the last person right before me said, it's, it's, it's the total absence of God. You've heard that, right? I thought, hmm, that doesn't ring true to me. So I said, uh, you know, I, I, I don't agree that that it's the total absence of God because hell is this. Hell is where you are enduring the just wrath of God for all eternity. You will, you will know God's presence in hell. It will be felt by his wrath. It's not removed from God as some believe. And you can explain hell by all the, the physical things. But when you come to understand that you're going to be under the, the just, righteous wrath and judgment of God for all eternity, all eternity, and it's going to be the right thing. You're not going to be able to say, well, I shouldn't be here. No. See, and that's why it's such a gracious thing when you look at Jacob I loved. But Esau, I hated or I, I incurred my wrath upon. You know what, beloved? Each and every one of us should be under the wrath of God. Each and every one of us is deserving and due the full righteous judgment and wrath of God in hell forever. But, 
Because of His grace, because of His love, because of the Savior that that provided our salvation, we can be saved. But it's by His grace. And, And sometimes we have a hard time understanding how God could hate. Well, just think of it as His judgment. Psalm 5, verse 5, the Bible says, You hate all who do iniquity. That's what the Bible says. Psalm 5, verse 6, Psalm 11, verse 5. See, he doesn't just hate the sin. We hear that. He hates the sin, but he he loves the sinner. No, he hates sinners. Because sinners will be under his hand of judgment. In his wrath forevermore. If they're not saved by God's grace. Douglas Moo says this. In an apparent paradox that troubles Paul. As well as many Christians. God loves the whole world at the same time. As he withholds his love in action or election for some. Um. That's hard to understand, but that's really what this is about. By this point, you're probably thinking, wow, if God accomplishes his purpose through his free, gracious choice of some while he rejects others, that's not fair. You may also be thinking, if God is absolutely sovereign as you've described him, then we're all just robots with no will of our own. How can God condemn robots that he has programmed to act in a certain way? If those are your questions then you know what? I have correctly taught you what Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13 is teaching us. You'll have to come back when we cover these verses a little more in depth. But meanwhile, ask this, does the truth of God accomplishes his sovereign purpose through his free choice of the remnant according to his grace cause you to rejoice? If it does... It should, because it shows why God's word of promise to you cannot fail and will not fail. And if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, then you can know that God will bring you to eternal glory. That your salvation is certain, because God always accomplishes his sovereign purpose through his free choice according to his grace. And let me just add that the truths of Romans 9 do not nullify the truth of Romans 4. That we are justified by faith in Christ. If Jacob was saved, it was because he believed in God's promised Messiah. If Esau was lost, it was because he rejected God's promised Messiah. The elect believe in Christ. The non-elect do not believe in Christ. So as 2 Peter 1, verse 10 says, Be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you by trusting in Christ alone. To save you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would really cement these truths in our heart, that you would help us to understand, even in the weeks to come, as we dig into this even more deeply, into the nation of Israel and how they relate to God. And, and, but, Lord, today I pray that you would help us to understand our need of a Savior. Father, this doesn't... The fact that God chooses us before the foundation of the world does not negate our need to respond to a loving Savior with His arms held open wide, saying, I died for your sin. If you just trust in me, if you'll come to me. Because all those whom God calls, He will save. And maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling convicted. You're feeling, wow, yeah, I do feel a burden in my heart. I I do feel that tug. That's a tug you don't want to fight. You want to Release control to that. Ask God to save you. Show show me, Lord, my need of a Savior. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. All those prayers are prayers when they're prayed from a sincere heart. God will answer. And he will transform you. He will cause you to be born again, to be transformed. He won't turn you into some weirdo. He's going to turn you into a person that can finally relate to him as your creator 
And you'll be able to understand more fully the things of God and your purpose and his plan for you. God doesn't save us to control us. God saves us because he loves us. And he knows what's best for us. And so, Father, I pray for each heart here this morning that they would examine these, own, these things in their own heart. And, Lord, that you would also bless our time over in the fellowship hall afterwards. Bless that food to our bodies as well. And, Father, we just uh, thank you. And, Lord, if anybody has questions about these things, I encourage people to write the questions down and, and maybe just on a little card or whatever and you can give them to me. And, and hopefully in the coming weeks we'll, we'll, we'll cover that question. But, Father, we pray that you would just continue to work and move amongst us. And uh, just give us a good week coming up. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.